We're working as a church through the, the gospel of Matthew, um, looking at this idea of the king and his kingdom. Um, we've gone through the first four chapters, and we only have 24 more to go. So we've looked at uh, the genealogy of Jesus. We've looked at John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. Um, we have looked at uh, Jesus going into the wilderness and, and being tempted, um, and then Last week, we looked at Jesus starting to begin his ministry. Um, he's going around to different regions, and he's starting to, um, to preach and to teach. And, um, and that's basically where we left off last week. Um, and so if you've missed any of those messages, we do post them on uh, our website and YouTube. Uh, but this week, we are getting into our first teaching discourse of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and it's going to take us some places. If you've read further in the book, you know that there's going to be some topics that uh, may bring us out of our comfort zones, uh, and that's okay. Um, Jesus considered it really important to preach about, and so we're going to do the same thing. Um, today, we're going to look at the greatest sermon ever preached, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. It is uh, about three chapters long. We're just going to do a few, the first 12 verses, um, and we're going to be talking about everything in the next few weeks, um, from murder to adultery, divorce, giving, praying, judging, possessions, fasting, and, and, and more. But what we need to realize at the very beginning is that the Sermon on the Mount is not written for unbelievers. It's written to you. It's written to disciples of Jesus. It's written to believers. And so the Sermon on the Mount is going to be um, a punchy sermon. It's going to be offensive to most of us in some way or another. Um, and it's going to both confront religious tendencies and irreligious tendencies. It's going to say things like, these people are in the kingdom and these people are out of the kingdom. And it's always going to be surprising who that is. And so it will be a fantastic opportunity as a church to have God shape our hearts if your heart is open to it, which I'm praying that it would be. Um, so we're just going to start with the first 12 verses. If you have a Bible, open up to chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. If you don't have a Bible, we have lots of free Bibles at the back. Uh, feel free to take one home, um, give it to a friend. Uh, there's also some really great Bible apps out there. Um, one of the ones that I really like is YouVersion. Um, you can put it on in your tablets or phones, and there's lots of good Bible reading plans and things that, that are with that uh, and tools for studying. So, uh, Matthew 5. I'm reading from the CSB translation. It'll be on the screen. It says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We'll stop there. Um, so verse 5, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount by going up a mountain. And, and oftentimes really important things happen up on mountains. And so Jesus, he sits down with his disciples um, he, and, and other people come and he begins to teach. 
And this, this Sermon on the Mount is really focusing on your heart. And that's really important to know because there's two opposing responses that I want to bring to your attention that can easily lead us away from understanding the point of Jesus' sermon. And it's both religion and irreligion. And I've referred to these terms before, but for the religious, you may look at, at the Sermon on the Mount, you may look at the teachings and think, okay, here's a bunch of Christian ethics and rules that I must do perfectly for God to ever love and accept me. But we know that that's not true. A few weeks ago, we were introduced to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and uh, they strive constantly to follow rules. They're constantly trying to earn salvation to God. And so the Sermon on the Mount is going to confront religiosity and say, you who are religious, you're not even close to righteousness. You might have not murdered someone, but if you hate anybody in your heart, then you've committed murder in your heart. So no matter what, you are guilty of sin. And so Jesus is over and over going to take um, it deeper and further. And he's going to teach us that outward actions don't necessarily mean that your heart is in the right place. And that can be the danger. You can give money, you can serve, you can help people, you can lead a Bible study, but if it doesn't mean anything, if the attitude of your heart is not in the right place. Now, on the other hand, you may hear the teachings of Jesus and think, okay, well, that's unattainable. Why even bother? Like you, you, you don't even begin to understand the, how far, far short I have come to the teachings of Christ. You don't understand how long the list of people I've murdered in my heart is. And so here's the danger for the irreligious. Because you acknowledge that you're unworthy of the teachings of Jesus, and that's, that's a good start. But where irreligion comes in is when you say, I'm not even going to bother trying to live a different life. Jesus died for my sins. Now I'm free to live however I want. I can look exactly like the world. Um, nothing needs to change in my life because Jesus will just always forgive me. And that response is just as far away from God as the religious person. And so the question I have always for the irreligious person is, what difference does Jesus make in your life? What is the point of Jesus um, if, if it makes no difference to your life? And, and that's the question that your non-Christian friends and coworkers are going to be asking as they look and evaluate your life. If Jesus has made no visible difference in your life, then why would they even ever consider it? So we need to be careful of both religious and irreligious tendencies when studying the Sermon on the Mount. The point is not to try and earn our salvation through striving for righteousness, nor do we just give up and not pursue righteousness at all. Instead, we need a, a gospel approach, and these teachings show us our desperate need for God's help because we have fallen short. And when we give our lives to Jesus, he will start to lead us into righteousness, and it will be a response of gratitude rather than a rule. And so what we're going to see is that God's kingdom ethics and his teachings are, are upside down and backwards compared to what our world and our culture teaches. And your life will look different as a result of being shaped by Christ. The gospel will change the way that you do things, the way you spend your money or the way that uh, you treat people, the way that you pursue and value and worship things in this world. And, and hopefully people will see a difference. I've said this before, but um, for a lot of people, the only Bible they might ever read is your own life. 
And so my hope and prayer is that the Sermon on the Mount would convict us, would reveal our heart, would lead us into righteousness as a response in an, of an understanding of the gospel, and that we wouldn't get distracted by religion or irreligion. So Jesus, he sits down, he begins the sermon by preaching the Beatitudes, which are a list of blessing that, that really um, reveal uh, the attitudes of our heart. There's four things, um, four kind of categories that we can put these Beatitudes in that will challenge the attitudes of our hearts, um, particularly our attitude towards ourselves, our attitude towards sin, our attitude towards others, and our attitude towards the world. So first is our attitude towards ourselves, and this is going to be verse 3. It said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think a lot of minds sometimes go to poverty. Uh, like you have to be poor in the material sense to be able to receive the kingdom of God, but that's not what Jesus is referring to here. Poor in spirit is the spiritual posture of your heart. One author I read said that the best way to understand this is as a humility that leads God's people to depend wholly on him. The humility that leads God's people to depend on him. That's this idea of being poor in spirit. And, and so to be poor in spirit is to know your need and your dependence for God, which ultimately requires humility. And so this confronts both religion and irreligion. Religion says, I don't need Jesus. Irreligion says, I don't care about Jesus. And the gospel says that we need Jesus. If you want to be saved in this life, if you want the, the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be blessed, your call is to wholly depend on God, which is why we give our lives and our obedience to Christ. But for some of us, there's this little thing called pride that can easily creep in. Um, and pride happens when we begin to depend on ourselves, when we think we can do it better, or we know best, or we ultimately don't need God. And sometimes God will allow us to go through things that will reveal our prideful heart, often painful experiences with the hope that you would repent and turn your dependence back on God where it's supposed to be. Many of you know I was part of a, a church planting startup in Kelowna. Uh, and because I was part of that, uh, the, the fellowship, which is our, our denomination, had me connect with lots of other church planters, um, and they brought us to different conferences and training events and different cohorts. And I started to hear a lot about this idea from, from veteran church planters of, of the great weakening. I was like, what's the great weakening? Here's what it is. Um, a lot of church planters, I'm using church planting as the, the example, a lot of church planters go into starting a church with a little bit of pride. There's often this thinking that they will change the world or they're going to revitalize and reimagine the local church. They're going to launch a service and it's going to be huge and every church that exists currently is not doing it right. Almost every church planter I've ever met has gone in with that attitude and, and our team wasn't far from that which is obviously wrong. And arrogance and pride are not the posture that we are called to have. But God will then often bring about the great weakening to humble that pride. And, and God did it with the three of us on this leadership team. He, he allowed us to go through some really intense spiritual warfare, um, some incredible disappointments, uh, many unmet expectations. And, and after about two years, we came to a point where we said, Lord, we cannot do this. 
And of course, God knew that. And he showed us and revealed some things in our heart and, and, and revealed some pride. And, and he showed us that we cannot start a church without wholly depending on God. Because depending on ourselves never worked. The great weakening was God allowing us to go through some hard things to knock us down a few notches so that we would depend fully back on him. And, and that's what we ended up doing. And it was hard, but it was actually a grace. Some of you have gone through a great weakening in your own life. Some of you are going to go through a great weakening in your life. And it can be a blessing if you see it that way. God will reveal where your heart is at, where pride has crept in. And the response from us must be repentance. It, it's, he's looking for you to be poor in spirit, to wholly depend on him fully. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who humbly and wholly depend on God, the kingdom of heaven is yours. So do you have the right attitude in your heart towards yourself? Do you have a heart of humility? Are you dependent on God? The second attitude, and this is from verses four to six, is our attitude towards sin. It says in verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. What does that mean? On the one hand, it, it does refer to God comforting us in, in grief. Um, and we use this verse actually quite, quite often. But on the other hand, it's more specifically refers to our attitude towards sin. Do we see the way that sin, do we see the sin the way that God sees sin? The, the religious tend to say, if I do enough good things, it will outweigh the bad things. And their heart towards sin is that I don't need God's help to atone. The irreligious tend to say, I can sin because it'll just be forgiven. And the attitude of the heart is in no regard for the sacrifice. The gospel says, look what your sin has done to Christ. To mourn over sin is not to just say, whoops, I got caught. You think about a child who gets um, caught with their hand in the cookie jar. The kid is not sorry um, for the sin. They're sorry that they got caught because they still want the cookie. If, if we are covering our sin or defending our sin or minimizing our sin or just saying, um, sorry that we got caught for the sin, the attitude of our heart is still in the wrong place. To mourn over sin is to despise it, to be broken up about it, is to be upset that it ever got that far. And so why do we mourn the sin? Because it costs you separation from God because it costs God his life. It, sin hurts the people that you love. Sin hurts you. Sin hurts your savior. And every time you sin, you need to remember that, that Jesus had to painfully suffer for that on the cross. And that should cause us to mourn and mourn the sin and what it did to our savior. But Jesus, he, he gives us hope. He doesn't leave us in the morning. The beatitude then says that you will be comforted. And so if our attitude is in the right place towards our sin, God will bring comfort. And what is that comfort? Well, it's his, it's his grace and his mercy towards us. It's the comfort of knowing that we've been forgiven and saved even though we don't deserve it. It's the comfort of knowing that we don't have to bear the eternal consequences of our sin, that Jesus has done all of that for us. So here's the question for you. Do you mourn your sin? 
says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When we turn from sin, when we have the right attitude towards sin, and we mourn over it and we turn from it, the amazing thing is is that Jesus blesses us by filling that void that was once filled with sin with righteousness. And again, it's a, it's a posture, and it's a posture as a result of the gospel working in our lives. It's, Lord, because of what you've done for me on the cross, I hunger and thirst to live your way. Lord, I want to live in the, the kingdom the way that you've set out and, and designed for us to live. And so the Lord says you will be filled if, you, if that's what you're looking for. And my hope is that as we work through the Sermon on the Mount and, and all the teachings that are in it, is that it would fill us with, with righteousness. I hunger and thirst for it. That there would be joy in, in living the way that God has called us to live, not to earn anything, but as a response to our salvation. So do you hunger and do you thirst for righteousness? Do you desire out of the gratitude of your heart what Christ has done for you, um, Do you desire to pursue righteousness? Now, the third thing is our attitude towards others. Verses 7 to 9 touch on this. These three Beatitudes focus on our response to others as a result primarily of the other Beatitudes. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In verse 7, it it talks about mercy. And mercy is something we have because we've received mercy from God. It is an outflowing and an overflowing of what God has given to us. And so Jesus says, blessed is the merciful. One author I, I was reading said this, mercy implies generosity, forgiveness, and compassion, and a desire to remove the wrong as well as alleviate suffering. This, uh, these past few weeks, um, I've been really thinking about this idea of mercy. We live in a current world where basic things are becoming really expensive. Over the past few weeks, I've been slightly overwhelmed by the amount of people in our community who are coming to the church legitimately seeking food and financial help. And I'm talking about single moms who are, who are choosing between feeding their kids or heating their homes. And they're, asking, they're coming to the church asking for help. And, and the problem is, as a church, we don't have a whole lot of extra resources to be able to offer people. We do have a, a small food bank out the back of the church that gets used on a regular basis. And, and over the last, particularly the last couple weeks, the need has become greater and greater. And so we met as a board this week and I brought this to their attention and I pitched an idea, an opportunity for us as a church to extend mercy to the people in need in our community um, to be able to show the love of Christ. And so we decided as a board to set up a benevolent fund. And this is the reason why. And, and we have a document at the back that explains all of this. And in that document, it says that we believe that people in need matter to God. No individual in the community who is willing to receive help in Christ's name should be without food, shelter, or other basic needs. Furthermore, God's people are commanded to care for each other um, see Galatians 6.2, John 3.17, Matthew 25.31-46. As an integral part of the ministry of the church, the Benevolence Fund will provide financial assistance to individuals or families who are experiencing financial or material needs. And so this is how it works. 
once a month on communion Sundays, we are going to take a second offering during the, the very last song of the service. And in this offering, we're going to actually pass the baskets out. This is a little bit more old school. And 100% of this offering will go to a benevolent fund to help people in need in our community who come to the church. And, um, and, and they don't have to be part of the church to be able to receive this, this fund. And, and what we're asking is if you, um, and prayerfully consider this, but if, if you give to it is that you don't redirect from your current um, giving to general um, this fund is specifically above and beyond um, current giving if God is leading you to do that. You can also give online. Um, you just put benevolent in the, uh, in the notes there. And here's the deal. We can only give what is available in that fund. We hope to be able to share lots of stories around it. We hope to um, show the love of Christ through it. We are praying that there will be discipleship opportunities through it. And if, if you want to understand some more um, details around it, uh, there's a, a four-page drafted document that will be um, voted at, at the next um, meeting. But it goes through sort of the logistics, and, and we are still working it out. And, uh, and you can kind of get an understanding of how it's going to work. We're not, we're not just handing money out. There is a, a specific process and procedure. But, but we want to be um, a generous church, a merciful church, um, and a church that is willing to help people who are struggling. And so if you have any questions around it, I'm happy to talk to you about that after the service. Um, the board had agreed that we implement the offering today. Um, so we're going to begin that today, and it will go to a separate fund uh, that will help people. It says, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I want that blessing for our church. So pray and consider giving to that fund uh, because the need is great out there, and it's only becoming more. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be sons of God. Um, and briefly, a purity of heart and peacemaking is a result of the other Beatitudes. Purity of heart and peacemaking is not something that we manufacture ourselves. It is a result of an attitude of, of mourning sin, of having a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, and allowing the Spirit of God to produce those things in our lives. And there's blessing in that. You will, be, you will see God and you will uh, be called children of God. Now the fourth attitude is that of towards the world. And this is from verses 10 to 12. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you on, and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were uh, before you. The call here is to have an eternal perspective. It's not easy being a Christian in our society. Um, and whether you like it or not, there's always going to be conflict between Christians and the world until the day Jesus comes back. And why is that? Because our attitudes are different. Our hope is different. Our eternity is different. And what we find satisfaction in is different. How we treat people is different. The way that we love people is different. And as a result, people are going to look at the way you live your life with hope, and they're either going to want it for themselves or they're going to be deeply bothered and troubled by it. And if people call you names, if they criticize you, um, when they try to pressure you into stumbling or they do things to hurt you, remember that you have a hope, a hope of eternity. 
You are blessed and the promise of the kingdom of heaven is yours. And Jesus says there's a reward in heaven and it will be great. It will not compare to what you will go through on this earth. So don't let the world take you down. You have a hope in Jesus that is greater than that. The other thing is pray for them. God can break through the hardest of hearts. So keep praying for those who persecute you. And know that you're also not alone in the persecution. The Bible is full of people being persecuted because they were following Jesus. All the disciples died as a result of following Jesus. It is the cost of following Christ, but Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted. I'm going to invite the, uh, the worship team to come back up. Those are the, the Beatitudes, and, and there's obviously much more that we could unpack in, in each one. Um, and I would encourage you to just keep studying them. And, and, I, and as I wrap up, I want you to consider this question this week. Is what is the attitude of your heart? The Beatitudes surface your heart. And that attitude of your heart is really important when we get into some of the more difficult teachings that Jesus is going to um, start to preach. And so this week, I want you to consider your attitude towards yourself, your attitude towards sin, your attitude towards other people, and your attitude towards the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the teachings of Jesus. Lord, that they challenge us and, and move us deeper. Lord, would you use the Sermon on the Mount to shape our hearts and our attitudes, that they would be in line with your kingdom. Jesus, would you reveal the attitude of our hearts? Help us to consider the attitude that we have towards ourselves, towards sin, towards people, and towards the world. Pray that you would help us to be a church that's shaped by your mercy towards us. Father, we, we worship you because you are the only one that is worthy of worship. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you died for us. Um, we lift this rest of this time to you, and we pray this all in your powerful and holy name. Amen.